This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer, I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Jess Kidd is someone we have been fans of for a very long time. Mr. Flood's Last Resort was a Discover Great New Writers pick back in the day, and Things in Jars was a 2021 monthly pick for fiction for us. The Night Ship is our latest BNN book club pick, and we are going spoiler-free in this conversation for obvious reasons. If you want the spoilers, join us in November when we do Jess's book club discussion event. That's going to be a blast. And you can get those details on BN.com. But in the meantime, hello, Jess. Thank you so much for joining us. And would you please tell us a story? Hello. In my best storytelling voice, I hope you're all sitting comfortably. The child sails in a crowded boat to the end of the Zyder Zee, past the foreshores of shipyards and warehouses, past new stone houses and the occasional steeple, on this day of dull weather, persistent drizzle and sneaking cold. There are many layers to this child, undergarments, middle garments and top garments. Micah is made of pale skin and small white teeth and fine fair hair and linen and lace and wool and leather. There are treasures sewn into the seams of her clothing, small and valuable like her. Oh, wow. So here we are on the night ship and we're cutting between 1628 and 1989. Do I have that's that right? That's right. Okay. So we're roughly 300 years apart. Okay. How did the night ship start for you? Because that is a fantastic opening. Um, it started with a friend. I was casting around. I'm going to try not to use too many kind of <laughs> maritime <laughs> phrases. I was casting around for a story and a friend came to me and said, you've got to tell this story. It's incredible. And there's a lot of nonfiction written about the Batavia or Batavia story, um, but, but not a lot of fiction. And as I started um, researching, I was looking to write another historical novel because I love the research element so much. But as I was led into the research, it was like going down a rabbit hole. I wanted to know more and more. And it's tantalizing because we don't have a huge amount of records left behind by the survivors um, of this incident, but, um, but we do have some archeology. span And so really, um, Micah and Gil, the two children we tell the story from, point of view from, uh, they sort of presented themselves as guides, really, for me, and a way in to tell this 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 very compelling but quite difficult story. It was interesting to me too, because having read your earlier books, this is the first time you've sort of done this parallel narrative where we're alternating timelines, we're alternating characters, we are alternating very, very excellent moments in a very big story. But I want to set something straight for a second because Batavia is actually now in Indonesia, right? It's Jakarta. Yeah. yeah. At the time in 1629, it was um, at the heart of the Spice Islands. And so right. it was crucial to the spice trade. So we've got this little girl who is with her nanny. And let's call her nanny. And she's on the ship and she's going to see her father. Her mother has died. And she's being sent to her father in the Spice Islands. And she's a pip. And then her counterpart of sorts is a little boy called Gil, who's had a much more different upbringing, not just because we're 300 years later, but his family situation is very different. And he's now with his grandfather on this very isolated set of islands off the coast of Australia. So 
Can we talk about these two kids for a second? Because they're really great characters. And I'm wondering who showed up first? Well, I always knew that I wanted to tell the story of the of the shipwreck. So if there's mm-hmm. shipwreck and there's a mutiny and there's murder. And so, but when I started looking into um, the finding of the wreck, that became compelling as well. So then I started thinking, I need a later date. I need a more contemporary time. Um, I also became fascinated by the people who inhabited the island seasonally. Now, these are very tiny little group of very barren islands. And when I actually physically went there, um, I was struck by how difficult it would be to survive there. And so I became interested in the crayfishing community that centuries later would use this as a, as a base and thought to myself, well, what if there's another child's point of view here um, who can then take us the continuing story? But as you say, because they're a dual narrative, both lives are happening at the same time. Um, and that was always the risk and the kind of exhilaration of having those two strands that would hopefully each inform elements of the other's life. I know it's not necessarily chronological, but they mirror each other in a particular way. And and without giving spoilers, they're kind of entwined. Their fates are a little bit entwined. We've got these dueling narratives, alternating narratives. We've got these alternating timeframes. You know, one of the things I look forward to in your novels is always a little bit of the ghostly and the gothic. And to a certain extent, that's here. I mean, we're going to talk about this monster that (laughs) our little friend on the boat is chasing around because it's very cute. But this is sort of, in many ways, much more realistic than some of your earlier work. And I was a little surprised. I was like, wait a minute. So can we talk about that evolution in your work and how that change came about? Sure. the evolution of the of, of the gothic and the supernatural and everything else like that has has changed um, with this novel um, because I think I was going back to a real story, a real life story. I felt like I owed it to the people um, that lived and died on on the ship to kind of to 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 put it across in as realistic a way as possible. But I was also dealing with two children, and Micah is a very imaginative child. And they're going through their own kind of traumatic events. And for me, it became the idea that imagination is a kind of tool for survival. Mm -hmm. And so the supernatural becomes a way that these children are trying to process or trying to understand what's happening in their very gritty realities. Um, someone actually said that to, uh, to their mind, they felt that the night ship was really a, a, a sort of haunted house story, but mm-hmm. on the sea. And I think the setting of it lends itself. I went to see the the replica of, of the ship in the Netherlands, and I was stunned by the kind of, the, the setting of it, the kind of um, the claustrophobia of it, but also the fact that it felt even just walking around it like a pressure cooker. So. So that, for me, lent itself to the Gothic. There's lots of different layers to the ship and lots of places that things could mm-hmm. potentially hide. Um, to say nothing of the kind of hierarchy of the ship and where you could and couldn't go in it too. So I think it, the setting lent itself really well to the Gothic and also these barren, windswept islands as mm. well. They felt extremely Gothic. I went in the Australian winter the same time of year that the ship 
wrecked mm-hmm. and particularly you would stand there and feel the weather drawing in I mean I had a light aircraft <laughs> and so I knew I could get out but that it really struck me that this um, was a potentially terrifying setting. The claustrophobia was something that I couldn't really shake I mean the way you set up the ship and how people are moving and certainly Micah's, her access to and from the world that she's living in with her governess or her nanny, whatever we want to call it, to to being able to run around in the lower decks is pretty intense. I mean, I felt like I was smelling a lot of things that maybe I had not smelled ever. And I've been around a lot of sheep in a single city. (laughs) Long story, but it's a smell I will never forget. And the way you describe sort of the levels of not just adventure, but her experience of the world. She doesn't even know her father. I mean, has she ever met her father? I don't really feel like she ever did. He, He left when she was small, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of um, the kind of joy of writing it was to to give that sort of immersive experience to the reader. And that's what I've tried to do with every book, to to sort of feel like all the senses are brought to life. And I think in that setting, um, the 17th century ship, we can all kind of imagine uh, the various levels of it. There There were cattle on board, there were soldiers on board, all sort of stacked up in a in a very sort of narrow um sort of low ceiling situation and and everyone was sort of living cheek by jowl and in that environment uh lots of things were simmering and it really did become like a pressure cooker with intrigue and different factions emerging and which ultimately led to this uh, mutiny but it was it was a real joy to be able to um, just employ those senses to really root us into the world, especially when we come to Gill's time where the action takes place on this very bleak island. So in both cases, I really felt it was essential to try and, and root through the senses into those worlds. Um, it's also such a leap of imagination going back that far um, previous books I had gone back to sort of Victorian time, mm-hmm, 50s, but going back even further than that, I felt it was really vital for us to try and know and understand and feel a sort of uh, be able to relate to these people who had everyday worries just like us. And so that that became really a key to sort of bringing that alive. Uh, the, the accounts we have are uh, written by the kind of men in charge, I suppose, but there were a lot of um, passengers that I found were voiceless. And so there were 30 or so children on board. So for me, I wanted to give voice to the people that wouldn't have been able to tell the story. As adventurous and sort of open to story as Mika is, Gil is really constrained in a lot of ways. He is now living with his grandfather on this isolated island. We're going to let readers discover how he ends up there because that's obviously a very big part of his story. But also, he's nine. And nine is on that cusp of not little kid, but also definitely not making great decisions. His mother clearly 
had some challenges. And he doesn't really, he's sort of almost a ghost in his own world. Can we talk about Gil for a second? He's a very sweet kid. I hope he's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a really interesting idea that you feel like he's a ghost in his his own life. He's very lost. And Mm. I think, you know, any tales of someone who's lost feel like a ghost story. But for Gil, in a way, Micah assumes different disguises to move freely about the ship. She's very, very brave. She wants to expand beyond what's been apportioned to her. She wants to not be told where she can and can't go. She has a real drive and a real curiosity. But with Gil, it's very, very different. He has to come in a a bit of a different way into finding his own identity. But he has been thrown into this environment. um, And I picked that time, not only just because it felt like an anniversary of 300 years, but at that time in that community, it was a very a sort of masculine um, environment, run on mateship, this idea that you know everyone's helping each other out. The families did arrive out into the island at certain points to join the fishers, but really it was a tough, tough existence and a tough life. And so Gil is brought into that and he's a real, real outsider in the way that Micah is a bit, but she's more adaptable, I think. So just exploring and thinking about these children as our perfect guides and our imperfect guides as well, really, it was a way in. And I think also having the child's point of view meant that there was a sort of another dual thing happening where you have the adult world sort of unfolding, this exterior adult world of how things are, but they're also the child's interior worlds unfolding too. And I think with a child like Gil, who's maybe a little bit more introverted, um, it becomes fascinating for me as to how the island, how that situation was kind of breaking him open and actually allowing him to become more himself, ultimately, even though that um, passage is, is not necessarily smooth for him. It's not, but he also has his grandfather and his grandfather's learning with Gil. It's really watching Joss evolve as this little kid is thrust into his world. I mean, it's clear that they don't have a pre-established relationship. Yes, he is his only living relative, et cetera, but they're sort of looking at each other across the table thinking, okay, who are you and how am I here and how is this going to work? And Joss has a very, he has a very nice evolution. Um, Joss in his own way too is isolated in this community and yet they both, they're not entirely alone. The scientists are there, Dutch is there. There's Sylvia, the neighbor's wife, who, can we talk about her for a second? (laughs) (laughs) She's complex, I feel. She is. I mean, I think what I love is it's like what happens when, when I'm sort of thinking up characters and when they present themselves to me, it's like getting to know someone. People are continuously surprising. And the minute you feel like you've got someone kind of pegged and you know them they're always doing something to surprise you and that's part of the beauty and 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 the fun of life and I I feel like it's very much the same with the characters I write I don't ever write them in isolation I'm always looking at their interactions and the way that people open each other up really and and help each other to evolve and so even a book like this which has got loners in it has got outsiders in I'm still looking at how those human interactions 
work. And this was something that became very clear, even from the very start with the research, that these children and these people in real life situations were put in tremendously stressful times um, where they were having to survive in potentially dangerous situations too. So it becomes more about this kind of idea of human behaviour under pressure and what it draws out of people. And so that was the sort of fascination that um, I know a lot of writers want to take their characters and put them in terrible situations and see what they're made of. And I think, I suppose, in a way, there was that element too. But there were so many lessons to be learned when I was looking into these extreme times. And so for me, it really did start to become about the human capacity for love and for hope and to survive as well. And part of that was that sort of childlike imagination as a strand running all the way through in both lives where the response to the reality is always a kind of an act of survival, I suppose. Gil, his given name is not Gilbert. (laughs) His given name is not Gilbert. It's Gilgamesh. And I want to bring in the epic of Gilgamesh for a second because it's been a minute since I've thought about that book. And here I am. And we've got the turtle. <laughs> Enkidu. <laughs> we've, got the, we've got Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And it's a really great metaphor, though, because essentially this kid's adventures are, if you think about the scale of what he experiences as a nine-year-old, you know, these are big. All of these things are big and life-changing and never-ending and... What does Gilgamesh mean for you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it felt to me that it was epic for this child, what, what he's going through. And he carries a secret with him in the same mm-hmm. way that Micah carries a secret. So mm-hmm. there was an element of that and a sort of an exploration. I mean, they're both going on a journey, even though the end point is this island, um, but they're going on a, on a complete journey. But I mean, with with the book, I think, or with the epic, I I think there were so many questions like our mortality or mm-hmm. the impossibility of mm-hmm. death. But one of the key things that really stood out for me are the idea of friendship and bravery and heroism and, and what that means and how it's different for every person. So a lot of my books and a lot of my writing tend to have friendship. Uh, as a real core mm-hmm. and friendship families like remaking different family structures as well so I suppose that's what drew me to it the name came before I started thinking actually I just I, I just had the name Gil in my head uh-huh. and then I thought he's got to have a sidekick and then as soon as I thought of Gilgamesh as an idea as having that epic strand uh-huh. Um, I thought I think I do there we are and I love writing animals and nature so that was brilliant and he is a very good tortoise. He is a very, very good tortoise. Do you have a favorite moment from writing this book? I mean, do you have something where just as you were sitting there, you thought, oh, this is it. This is it. I found I found the heart of the thing. I've had several moments like mm-hmm. that all, all the way through. And one of them is actually involving the ship herself. Um Quite early on, I was doing research. I went, I went to Western Australia, went to the museums. And one of the things I did was I went on replica boats, mm-hmm. wooden boats, and I actually spoke to sailors of, of replica boats. And one of the sailors told me that she really felt that her boat was alive. 
Mm-hmm. that it was a, a character in her own right and she had this wonderful expression of the ship comes to her foot and this idea that she could trust this vessel and that sort of unlocked so much in terms of the setting and this idea that uh, the passengers are on this ship it's terrifying it's for months and months and months people will be born and people will die for the duration of this very long sea voyage at that time And so for them, they had to trust and believe in this ship. And so this was a really fundamental moment for me. And from that point, I could start to sort of navigate around her when I started seeing her as a person or as as an entity in her own right. So I think that was a real revelation. And I think also going physically to, um, to fly over the islands and to look at the islands as well. I got a real stunning sense of, of, of the gravity of being landed on that island, especially as a child, whether you were joining that community of crayfishers or you were um, rescued and you were one of the survivors of, of this terrible shipwreck. The isolation, the weather, the conditions. And so a lot of the responses in writing it were actually very tangible, very physical. And I think that's why there's a a physical object that connects the two children together over time, not just the continuing fact that they're in the same place. um, But that to me felt very important that there were still tangible artifacts that could link us to these people. You have a master's in writing, you have a PhD in writing, you have spent quite a lot of time immersed in the craft of writing. Can we talk about process for a second? Because again, I know I mentioned at the top of the show that this is a departure for you, just in terms of structure. I mean, all of the things that we love about story for you are there. But I'm fascinated by the fact that you changed structure. And I'm wondering how we got here in the evolution of Jess as the writer, how we're here now? I think with every book or everything I write, short stories, um, any any story that I want to tell, I set a challenge. And I think the structural situation came about not only because I wanted to have the more contemporary take on what happens after the shipwreck and and the murders and, and, and everything else, but also that kind of high wire act of swapping between narratives for me felt really exhilarating because it felt a little bit akin to a short story where you have to be very vivid, you have to be very quick and to keep that interest. But I also knew that we're dealing with different passages of time. Gil's time moves much quicker, is a smaller quantity of time. Micah's time takes her over the journey of months so time is moving differently. We're switching backwards and forwards 300 odd years. And so it felt like all these challenges were adding up, but, but that's what I kind of loved about it. And then I suppose also the expectation of having the kind of supernatural strand and how to, to weave that in really. And as I said, it, it was terrifying, but also wonderful to be able to take a real story and a real life situation and then try and do justice to that and find another way in because I think this is a difficult story um, to tell it was how am I going to frame this a lot of the structure and a lot of the choices I made was um, hopefully just to tell the best possible version of that story in the best way I knew how at the time 
which I think is my approach to every novel that I've written, is like, how do I make this immersive? How do I bring the reader on journey with me? And with this book, I'm asking um, to come on, on quite a difficult journey in parts, but also quite a liberating journey. So I, I suppose that had to match with the structure that had to kind of match it, really. You know, the thing that I've always appreciated about your work, too, is your chapters are very tight. And I mean, I think all of your books end up with what some people might consider an extraordinary number of chapters. And I just think of how Jess writes. I mean, it's just, but when you're flipping through and you're like, wait a minute, chapter what? <laughs> and I love, I love the pacing. So I did, can we talk about the pacing for a second? Because as you said, it is a high wire act. You're talking about time moving differently. For you as the writer, what's that experience like? How are you separating out what needs to happen next? Are you writing in a linear fashion and then combining the two? Or are you just saying, this is what I feel like working on now and I'll figure out where it fits later? It's sort of a bit of both, really, I think, in, in some respects. Um, I think the very short chapters sometimes comes about because I like writing flash fiction and I like writing short stories. And I like that discipline of telling something very um, with, with a very economical amount of words. Although I also like quite um, elaborate um, sort of descriptions and things like that. So it does tend to sort of speed up a bit towards the end. As the stories are unraveling, it really felt like I was trying to keep up with them at some points because the because of the switch between them. I would do a bit of both. I would write um, passages just concentrating on one character, but I would also deliberately switch between them because I was hoping that you see a kind of mirroring effect, but you also see there's a slight difference in the language. There's a slight difference in the way the descriptions work, but we're still kind of embedded in the same place. So there's still continuity, hopefully enough to keep the reader from feeling really dizzy. <laughs> but I think also into that sort of mix, the other thing I tried to do is before I was uh, looking into writing, uh, I come from a very big Irish family of storytellers. I was a bit like a sort of dysfunctional Matilda in that I loved books. <laughs> I didn't have that many, but I'd get them out of the library and then I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm not giving them back. I'm just going to keep this book now. This is mine. And so th there was an element of that, really. But I think because um, I, I love the oral spoken account just as much as writing, that sort of per hopefully permeates where we have um, some folklore uh, from from Dutch and Australian, um, Indigenous Australian um, folklore underlying the kind of supernatural there's also family stories. There's also this sort of um, creation of history and creation of myth, which I felt was, again, quite important for people that had found themselves rooted in a very different place. So that was a sort of fascination. And that linked back in with my own family who, um, who arrived in London and were, were going over their own myths and their own identity and their own family stories. So that sort of really appealed to me. There's a lot of joy in this novel in unexpected ways in the night ship. And, and partially that is the children themselves and, and what they find and what they discover. And, and the adults, <laughs> the adults are a little wild. They all have their own sort of paths to travel and everything else. But I do want to stress that there's a lot of joy in this book and there is some fun and there is witty dialogue and everything else. It is very much a Jess Kid novel. 
but the claustrophobia, <laughs> Jess, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. So for you as the writer and you're walking into this world and you're saying, I know what I need to do. I know where I need to go. Story. I mean, your stories and your characters are so tightly linked that it's not even, there's not even a moment to say, well, which came first, the story, the characters. It's like everything showed up at once. I mean, constructing an atmosphere, constructing the world. Where do you start? It's two things. I mean, I have quite um, a sort of a visual route around it, but also physically. It's very physical with me and it's the sensory idea. And a, a, it's the same sort of thing as bringing the reader along, hopefully with me. But I think it's also when I use something like Supernatural, it's that suspension of disbelief. And I think I want to go back to when I was a tiny child listening to these storytellers and knowing I'm really shy. I'm never going to be able to do that. <laughs> but I want to escape into these like incredible immersive uh, situations, really. But I think I try and balance this kind of um, creation of a world or this world building with the dialogue. And that's where things like the humour comes in. And particularly with this one, because it's quite a gritty subject, but it was really important to have that joy and have that humour. And to my mind, that comes very akin with the bravery in the book and the courage in the book. There is this kind of ability, even under this immense pressure, to have these moments of joy. And that feels like a very kind of human trait to me. And uh, just in both times, I could see elements of that, um, even down to the research when I was um, looking at all of the, uh, the named crew members um, in, in the ship. Some of them had these fantastic names that really communicated their personalities and the joy of someone naming them. So there were, there were little sparks of that kind of thing that I would find that made it very personal, very immediate and very relatable because it feels like these are all kind of universal things that everyone goes through, um, love, hope, friendship, and difficulties as well, as well as our own kind of evolving journeys into our identities, whatever they might happen to be. We know who you are as a writer, but who are you as a reader? Who are some of your influences? I have a lot of different influences and I sort of draw on them for, from all different directions. I think I, I do really love uh, nonfiction and when I'm actively writing, I have to avoid reading too much because I sort of pick up other people's voices and I think, this is great. And then I realise who is somebody else. And so it's trying to stay true to that because I think every writer is sort of putting on a mask, if you like, or sort of having a ventriloquist moment um but I think there are a few things that really influenced this Gilgamesh was one um the old man in the sea um uh -huh. that and and the rhyme of the ancient mariner so things yep. like that real sort of sea tales real sort of gothic stuff was really influential um but I think I mean recently um I'm very late to it Lincoln in the Bardo and George Saunders his short stories which I love mm -hmm. um and it's just that how do you recreate those kind of supernatural elements and how does that work oddly enough uh the sort of love affair I have with the supernatural and writing about the ghostly ones and not just because I get an extra cast of people although that I really like to have but it links back to kind of the Irish background where the supernatural is a very 
mundane kind of matter of fact thing it's like when when apparitions come it's like well they're going to ask things like well sort out the rats in the barn or give my trousers to this person and it's it's nothing lofty but at the same time it is so it's it's that lovely um the writers I like do that really well they balance the kind of mundane with the extreme or with the elevated uh, in a way that you can kind of absorb into your own life, I suppose. I think, too, one of the things I really appreciate about your novels is the fact that I can step into a world that's immediately recognizable, but at the same time, you're going to push me in directions that I'm not necessarily planning on going, but the characters carry me along and the story carries me along, and I just I want to know what these people are going to do. I mean, I'm just thinking of Maud Drennan for a second, and I'm like, yep talking to saints. <laughs> yeah. It was fun having that experience of this woman trying to figure out what she's looking at, but to take children and put them into a not dissimilar situation where the, you know, the ground's a little a kilter on to, literally on, on a ship, your, your balance is completely off. But even for Gil, his, his grounding is not your average little kid going to school day to day and their soccer practice afterwards. I mean, his world is not average. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think there is a sense that these children's lives are changing, they're dynamic, they don't quite know where they're going to. And a lot of things are beyond their control. They're having to navigate the the world of adults that sometimes is not very understandable why things happen. And so it's really interesting noting that idea that they're um both of them I mean Micah's world is in motion the whole time and so is Gil's he's having to learn new rules um as to where he's um turned up but I I think the thing is I'm very drawn towards the outsider um point of view and I think that they make the best guides I suppose in some respects because it's that defamiliarization of the familiar world and so when I have these kind of elements of supernatural um be it ghosts or saints or monsters um i'm really looking at what function they have um not just just about those entities but why they are seen and what they represent and i think in the night ship there is an element that the monsters are sort of created as a way for the children to negotiate what's happening around them to make sense and so Again, it's going back to that idea of imagination as, as a tool for survival or as an act of survival for many people, not, not just children, adults too, potentially. You've written how many novels in five years? I mean, all of your books have been very tightly timed. I feel like you've written four books in maybe five or six years. Am I right about that? Yeah. That, okay. About it. And a children's book as well. <laughs> okay. And a children's book. You've talked yeah. about wanting to write plays. You've talked about wanting to do stories again. What's next? Well, I'm currently writing two books and uh, at the same time, which is quite a challenge. And one draws on myth and it's going back. It's uh, It's got a contemporary twist to it as well. And the other one's a cosy crime. But because I'm writing it, it's not particularly cosy. <laughs> it's quite twisted. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And I think um, also it goes with that challenge of creating quite different worlds. And because they're quite different characters, hopefully they won't start wandering into (laughs) each other's novels. So hopefully I can keep them all separate. 
Um, but but it's it's a lot of fun. I'm hoping to continue to challenge myself at least. Oh, that sounds so excellent. I'm really excited about both of those. What do you want readers to think of when they think of the night ship? That's a good question. I feel that first and foremost, there's an element of experience in it. And if I can, with every book, I've um, loved going out, talking about it, had the reader's response, because it's that that sort of informs the next book, that connection, really. And if, if there's something in the book that appeals to someone or that sings to their own life, then that's really, really vital for me. So I suppose if there's an identification or if there's, oh, okay, I know what that's like or some element that sort of chimes in their own life, I think that would be wonderful. Um, I think, I mean, there is so much for the, the two different points of view as well. But just, I, I do feel maybe it's quite personal still because it's, it's my book, baby. But I feel like there might be an element of Micah and Gil both in me. And so if, if other people can identify where they're Micah, where there's Gil, um, I think that would be wonderful. They really are great characters. And I have to say, I didn't feel like I was being yanked in either direction as I turned pages. And that's a really important point, I think, to make where, yeah, you're going from 1628 to 1989. And it's just, everything is so seamless. And the way you make those transitions and the way you sort of slip in and out of these children's lives is pretty terrific. It's, it's a really excellent reading experience. Jess Kidd, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The Night Ship is out now. If you want the spoilers, join us in November at the book club event. Thanks again. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.